get a balanced analysis on both domestic and international topics within the framework of cross-cultural comparisons. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. Chinese officials are busy now hosting Western diplomats in China, including the Canadian Environment Minister and the U.S. Commerce Secretary, to be followed quickly by the British Foreign Secretary. What do these high-level visits tell us? Could it be a sign of a progress in relations between China and the West, which has been on the steady decline for the past few years? To discuss these issues and more, I'm glad to be joined by Zhou Bo, Senior Fellow at the Center for International Strategy and Security at Tsinghua University, Warwick Pao, the adjunct professor at the Queensland University of Technology and the chairman of Smart Trade Networks, and Isabel Hilton, founder of China Dialogue. That's our topic. I'm Xu Qingdu. Welcome to Dialogue. Uh, so, Joe Bo, I will start with you. As we said, here we have uh, uh, U.S. Uh, Commerce Secretary Raimondo, you know, she had the chance to meet the Chinese senior officials, uh, you know, a flurry of them. They have agreed to establish dialogue and other mechanisms of communication. What do you make of the visits? Can we say, you know, it's uh, rather optimistic to see the two sides are working, are cooperate, cooperating again, let's say? I think all Chinese people really would like to see such kind of interactions between China and the U.S. Of course, it didn't just say how important this bilateral relationship is, but even for the rest of the world to see the two giants, China and the United States, talking to each other, shaking hands with each other, with each other, it's a big relief for the rest of the world. And actually, her visit is a follow-up of the visit by some uh, other senior officials like uh, American Secretary of State, the Secretary of Treasury, or even uh, Special Envoy on climate change. So this is good for us. And But uh, I'm also aware that uh, there are still some kind of, uh, you know, restricted areas, uh, that are almost forbidden for corporations, that is Americans, uh, you know, small yard and high fence. And that probably would have been such things like chips, semiconductor, and so on and so forth. I would not uh, blame the United States, you know, for being, uh, you know, jealously guarding this kind of American uh, advanced technology. It's up to the Chinese to, to decide what to do. Of course, Chinese have to decide to do something, but I believe this actually could provide to be a chance for China to have uh, to bend themselves with more efforts on develop develop the indigenous high-tech in China. Actually, I talked to some experts who said the gap actually is about eight to ten years. After that, it's hard to say who is actually better. Well, Isabel, you know, of course, as Jobo said, there's a sigh of relief. Uh, do you share the sense? Oh, absolutely. I, look, this visit and, and the previous visits are not going to resolve all the difficulties between China and the United States, but it is so important that these differences and difficulties be managed. Uh, these are the two biggest economies in the world. They're enormous military powers. And the confrontation is bad for everybody, particularly when 
if there is no uh, regular Laiwang, you know, the coming and going between them, then levels of trust drop, uh, communications in an emergency become more difficult. So all of these visits, and I think that the structures that might be regenerated beneath the Secretary of State level, so regular contact between officials, uh, the kind of thing that helps to restore the, the, the rather disastrous loss of trust between these two countries, and simply managing the, the majority of the relationship, which is, as, as General Mondo said, non-contentious trade. It's, it's essential to have these discussions. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Warwick, you know, Secretary Raimondo basically said that, you know, 99% of trade between the two countries uh, are, you know, not related to national security. I mean, people, some people may disagree a little bit with that, you know, that specific number. But anyway, it seems that, uh, you know, there are differences, for example, even with this uh, dialogue and also mechanism, for example, or what, you know, do they mean, you know, for the U.S. at uh, they aimed at, uh, in their words, reducing misunderstanding of their export control, uh, basically as a channel to explain to the Chinese side. But for China, probably that we see it as a, you know, as a channel to strengthen communication and uh, to better present their own case, probably against some of the U.S. practice. What do you make of that? It seems like they are trying to control the areas of differences uh, in a limited, let's say, area, but and keep it going for the majority of trade. Look, I think one of the challenges is that when the rhetoric gets very heated and very generalized, that you do tend to lose the the broader benefits of the relationship that has evolved over the last um, four decades or more. The trade relationship and the investment relationship between the United States and China has been central to the economic welfare of both countries but has also been pivotal to the economic welfare of many other people in the world. And these talks are now starting to get back down to earth, if you will, focusing on some of the nitty gritty issues that require careful, patient, across the table discussions, rather than yelling and screaming at each other and using very heated, inflammatory, and frankly, not very useful rhetoric to describe you know, your counterparty. So, look, I think it's a, it's a constructive step forward that recognises the importance of the economic relationships. Push comes to shove, it's the economy, stupid, and making sure that that doesn't go off the rails for everybody is important. Mm-hmm. Well, Isabel, we do see, you know, before the remoteless visit, uh, Washington had removed export controls of 27 Chinese companies. Uh, people see that as a positive signal, and that's uh, from the Chinese side. That's how they view that action. And uh, Secretary Raimondo, you know, did talk about uh, you know people to people exchange, you know, to strengthen the exchange. And uh, she talked about the Chinese uh, visitors, you know, how they will contribute to the U.S. Uh, revenue and uh, you know, the creation of jobs. Uh, it seems like um, you know at least for for the commerce ministry. I mean, she's all for business between the two sides, in addition to, of course, national security uh, restrictions. Uh, but then you know, people uh, are cautious. After all, that's the Commerce Ministry, um, because there's an overall, let's say, uh, you know, very strong you know, rhetoric, strong sentiment against China in, in the U.S. 
Yeah, I, I think it is a, um, a positive message and it was intended clearly to create a good atmosphere for this visit. I mean, you're right that we've had positive messages from, from Commerce, but also from Janet Yellen before her visit. And if you look at the US political landscape, you can see that it goes from, you know, absolutely uh, anti-China on the far right of the Republican Party to a, a broad spectrum through to uh, constructive engagement and managing of differences. And I think that it's very important for both sides, as my fellow contributor said, to tone down the rhetoric and build on the positive. And I also think it's important, given that we're going into an electoral season in the United States, where there is a very, very high risk that Donald Trump, for example, might return to the presidency, which would be very, very bad news for China and the rest of the world, that China will be, as it always is, a big factor in those elections. And if um, Secretary Raimondo can come back with something positive, some gain, then she can deflect the criticism that the Biden administration will be receiving from the far right simply for going to China. There are people in the United States who say, they should be cutting China off completely. We shouldn't be visiting. So it's very important to preserve that middle ground uh, against these very ferocious political uh, currents. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Joe, as uh, we understand, you know, the, the U.S. you know giving its leadership role in the West, uh, you know, their China policy often has uh, you know a deep impact on its allies. On its allies' relationship with China. Uh, here, Raimondo said, I quote, you know, President Biden asked me to come here to convey the message that we don't seek to decouple. We seek to maintain this uh, $700 billion worth uh, commercial relationship with China. You think such remarks or such, um, let's say, adjustment or fine-tune of relationship with China will have an impact on countries like, uh, you know, what we are going to talk about in the UK or Canada. I kind of uh, agree with uh, what uh, Secretary Nemunda said when she talked about uh, America's wish of not decoupling. But I wonder whether this is really what uh, she means, because apparently uh, Trump administration's uh, decoupling policy has failed. So this actually is a result of uh, of a failed policy. Decoupling for me is just like, you know, pulling out the capillary from the flesh. Yeah. And then um, American government apparently has adopted a new term that was coined by von der Leyen that de-risking. Again, uh, how different might de-risking be from decoupling? So I think uh, the United States actually has made some uh, progress in realizing how unnecessary and how impossible to antagonize China in an unnecessary way. And I believe if they have decided, you know, to change the policy, as was seen in, in a litany of visits by senior American officials, this might have an impact on American allies like Canada or United Kingdom. The United Kingdom, of course, is a close allies. Sometimes I believe you know, its policy toward China is a bit like uh, Japan's policy toward China. That is to say that they are heavily influenced by American policy towards China. So in a way, they're almost uh, predictable. But having said that, I understand how important Britain is. Yeah, even if it's no longer uh, in European Union. And I believe uh, no, no one uh, is stupid and no countries 
would blindly you know, pick sides. Nowadays, the thing is, countries just uh, choose issues rather than blindly you know, pick sides. So therefore, I believe still there are plenty of opportunities for countries like Canada or the uh, United Kingdom to cooperate on China, but it's on the issue-by-issue issue approach. Uh, Warwick, I want to also have your opinion on that, you know, like uh, how impactful the U.S.-China policy will have on countries like uh, in the U.K., Canada, including in Australia. Well, by and large, these countries are in lockstep with the U.S. on all core strategic policy standings, and, uh, and I don't really see a lot of light in between the positions adopted by these core five eyes allies, if you will. The reality, though, is that these economic relationships are almost impossible to untangle without causing incredible economic hardship. And reality is something that you can't opt out of in the end. You can have as much rhetoric as you want about decoupling or de-risking, paint the picture however you want. But the bottom line is, is that the entanglement of these supply chain systems that have delivered low-cost goods, consumer goods, low-cost factor inputs for American production systems are simply not things that you can easily, with a wave of a wand and a few words here and there, break away from without causing serious damage to yourself. This boomerang effect, I think, has come home to roost. And the talk of no longer wishing to decouple is a reflection of policy failure and a confrontation with reality. That's a good thing because it means that the actors involved can finally, hopefully, put some of the unproductive rhetoric behind them. And I say hopefully, uh, so that they can focus on the concrete issues at hand that actually matter. Mm -hmm. uh, are you saying that, uh, you know, uh, let's say US uh, policy on China, um, you know, is becoming more realistic? You know, previously the talk of decoupling, the talk of isolating China, you know, despite the warning from, you know, many scholars that China is the largest trading country, uh, it's very difficult to decouple or to isolate China. Uh, but anyway, you know, two years later or three years later, there's a realization probably, as you said, the reality. And so that's also probably the same, uh, can we say, the conclusion, uh, uh, you know, drawn probably for other countries like, uh, like UK and, uh, and other US allies? Coming to grips with reality, having spent a number of years trying to deny it rhetorically, will take time. Countries need to find ways and politicians need to find ways to preserve their dignity as they, in effect, backtrack and do a 180 on previous positions. So I think we've got to grant the politicians some space to do that. But we also need to recognize what's going on. And what's going on is a need to, and, and it's a challenge, you know, to balance the emotional genie that has been let out of the bottle in terms of domestic politics through the heated and inflammatory rhetoric with these realities. And how do you navigate that, particularly as you head into an election year? You know, these are some challenging times. And I think whilst there is a recognition of these realities, there is also a contradiction. And that is that the politics of the American domestic scene at the moment makes it very, very difficult to navigate a less emotional and more rational path when it comes to China.
well, uh, you know, Isabel, uh, you are nodding your head while Warwick was speaking. Uh, we know that the UK uh, Foreign Secretary uh, cleverly is coming to China uh, tomorrow, uh, Beijing time on Thursday, on, on Wednesday actually. Uh, so, you know, UK used to be all, you know, said by the UK Prime Minister, you know, once that UK wanted to be the best friend of China in the West, and then UK became the fierce attacker of China critic, I would say. And then now uh, it seems like uh, the, the UK wants to improve or stabilize the relationship with China again. Well, I hope we get to a point of equilibrium. There was certainly some surprise on both of those extremes, which I think were, were uh, departures from reality also. Um, but, but clearly, you know, again, China and UK are important to each other. It's a much less important trading relationship than China has with the EU or with uh, the US, but they nevertheless are important links. And I think that the, the UK, rather like the EU or the US, has settled on a kind of de-risking language rather than a decoupling language. Because, you know, as we've heard, decoupling is unrealistic. It's a failed policy. It would be massively to the disadvantage of everyone. But I think that there have been a number of, of rather rude talks in international relations um, in recent years, which have made the normal or what I have, you know, most of my working life thought of as normal diplomatic exchanges rather more difficult. And one was obviously the pandemic where people simply didn't meet. Um, and, and the most recent one uh, was uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has changed the security thinking in Europe and the UK very radically. And that's because um, after the invasion, the, the realization of Europe's dependency on Russia for, uh, for energy and Russia's attempt to weaponize that dependence made everybody think about supply chains, which had already been disrupted by the pandemic, um, and vulnerabilities. What are parts, these parts of the relationship that could be used against uh, uh, Europe or, or the UK by China, it, should it choose to. Now, that's not to say that China has done that. But the reassessment of war, the broad spectrum of national security that followed the war in Ukraine led to that reconsideration. And that's going to be, I don't think that's going to change um, because, you know, it's, it's now a new security reality. So the challenge is to isolate, if you like, that element, you know, the mutual security concerns. And of course, China has its own security concerns from the broader relationship in which uh, mutual uh, effort is absolutely essential. Climate change is frequently noted, and I absolutely endorse that. And so is, is, is trade and, and those elements of trade which are non-contentious and contribute uh, to, to mutual benefit. So it's a matter of... of I, I suppose, recognizing this new reality and trying to isolate the damage as much as we can. And I think that these visits are a key part of that. Yeah. Can we say, uh, Isabel, the, the visits, uh, or in particular the visit by the Foreign Secretary Kalevla here, is, uh, is an effort to normalize or is a sign of, uh, you know, trying to normalize relationship uh, between London and, uh, and Beijing? Yes, I think these visits are, are very much, you know, whilst recognizing that we're in a different place from, from, from where we were five years or certainly 10 years ago, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, talk to each other, that, that, you know, there's a new team in Beijing, uh, there's a, a government that hasn't had very close dealings in, on a kind of personal level with Chinese officials and ministers recently. All of these are essential parts of the diplomatic fabric. And that, I think, this visit is, is a manifestation 
of that willingness to talk, to talk through differences and not avoid them, not pretend they're not there, but also not to let them completely destabilize a relationship, which has many, many other elements to it. Uh, where well, Joe Boy, you know, Isabel mentioned about the Ukraine, let's say, effects on China's relationship with uh, the West, in particular European countries. Uh, it, it, I'm not sure whether there's a lack of understanding from the Chinese side about how concerned European countries are in terms of uh, reliance on the particular country, you know, that case in Russia, and then they talked about China. And, and so can you explain, you know, what's the long-term or consistent China policy toward, let's say, European countries or the West? Well, you see, the problem uh, of Western policy toward China on this Ukrainian issue is that it wishes to examine China-Europe uh, relationship against the backdrop of the war, which uh, has nothing to do with China. China is not informed, and China is not involved. Many people would take China's uh, you know, position as a kind of pro-Russian neutrality, which is totally wrong, because uh, action really speak louder than words. And what is Chinese action? Chinese action, firstly, is no action. That is uh, not providing any support to Russia in the war. Just to imagine uh, about this, well, people might take it for granted. But if China has uh, really started providing material or military support to Russia, then we're already in the dawn of the Third World War. And another major contribution by China is that China has made it crystal clear that uh, no nuclear weapons should be allowed. To you to be used in Europe. Yeah, I, I wrote about that at, at the first Chinese in Financial Times, and then this was uh, uh, again heard by my president speaking uh, in his conversation with Olaf Scholz and with with Joe Biden. So, so these uh, the policies are clearly cut. Of course, China wishes to maintain good relationship with Europe. Yeah, because it serves their interest. Yeah, and particularly because China's relationship with uh, United States has uh, become uh, very much soured. Therefore, it is in our own interest to have a better relationship with Europe. I just hope, you know, uh, European countries, like the countries in the global south, will just think for themselves where to stand. Because what we're seeing right now in global south is that uh, these countries actually refuse yeah, to take sides. And with this uh, recent expansion of BRICS, demonstrate where the world actually is going. Do you think there's an impact on the uh, West uh, policymaking towards the developing nations, uh, you know, given what happened uh, over the BRICS expansion to include six more, uh, obviously, powerful middle-income countries there? Yeah, I, I think definitely it will have an impact on uh, uh, the European countries. Actually, at the Munich Security Conference, which I attended this year, uh, there was already a kind of awareness by the European countries to include more, you know, developing countries. I even saw some representative uh, of uh, some African countries being there. But eventually, you see, China is not trying to establish uh, an, another international order because the international order is made of many things, including rules and regimes, primarily in economic fields that are basically made by the West. So China would also make a use of these, uh, China has to abide by these rules. So for China to overthrow all these rules, to establish, uh, you know, new rules and regime, first of all, how can you do that? Second, how many countries wish to follow that? So eventually, this, I believe this kind of expansion of BRICS in comparison with NATO's expansion would be extremely interesting. Because 
how many countries would want to join NATO now? Only three countries on the waiting list. That is Bosnia and Herzegovina, Georgia, and Ukraine. That's it. Yeah. And there are no more uh, other countries who would wish to, to join NATO. But look at uh, BRICS. How many countries want to join? Right? Dozens. Right? So putting all them all together, it should be more than 40. Then it becomes an organization that is larger than European Union and NATO. Doesn't that tell where the world is moving towards? That's an interesting observation. Warwick, obviously, if you take a look at the relationship between China and the West, or China between, uh, between China and the English-speaking countries, or the Five Eyes countries here, uh, so that's a part of a very complicated or increasingly complicated global order, uh, all the changes, you know, with uh, NATO expansion, the Ukraine conflict, and then you have the BRICS expansion here. Yeah, I think that we can note a few things. One is, is that um, the Ukraine debacle has been many years in the making. NATO and the European powers and the United States has had many years to address the security architecture concerns that have ultimately bubbled over to the present stage of this conflict. So this is many years in the making. That's the first thing. It is a European and NATO problem. It isn't a China problem. The second thing to note is that NATO is a military organization. BRICS isn't. BRICS is an economic development organization that is focused on addressing the limitations of existing institutions to support and enable the development of the global south. We're talking about the financial architecture of the post Bretton Woods institutions, such as the IMF and the World Bank, not actually enabling the economic development of the vast majority of the world for the last 70 years. These are common grievances that are material and meaningful to the lifestyles and well-being of billions of people. So there is a fundamental difference between the idea that sits behind NATO and what its expansion ambitions mean and the ideas that sit behind something like BRICS and what its growth and expansion means. Look, the bottom line is in terms of Europe, Europe needs to figure out what its own interests are and be clear on what they are and sorting out a sustainable security architecture after this debacle is something that Europe is going to need to do. And it is going to have a reverberating effect around the globe in terms of the status of the West, the collective West, and the status of the United States as a military power. The world is changing. And um, hopefully the discussions that are happening in Beijing will contribute to some peaceful pathways to navigating through these stormy seas. So can we say you are absolutely positive uh, to these uh, exchanges between China, the UK, and of course Canada and the US here? The fact that people can still talk is something to be embraced because if you can't do that, then there is absolutely zero chance of finding common ground and carving a pathway through these very, very choppy seas in a way that ultimately resolves the tensions and the contradictions that are clearly playing out at the moment, not only in the global landscape, but in hotspots such as Ukraine, but elsewhere like Niger and countries like that. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. Thank you for being with us. I'm Xu Qingdu. See you next time.